You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Energy. Natural gas. Energy infrastructure. Solar power. Wind turbines. These 1970s and 80s declines in oil in the electricity system, they may be able to teach us something about how fast we can make such a rapid switch. When we do this transition, there is going to be trillions of dollars of assets that are going to be hurt or value that's going to be destroyed. For November 1st, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. The transition in the transportation sector is really picking up speed now, so it seems like a good time to take a fresh look at the moves that both consumers and the automotive industry are making. Because the headlines have been coming fast and furious lately, here's a small, fairly random sample. Volvo announced that it will manufacture its final diesel engine next year. Hyundai says it's rushing to open its EV plant in the U.S. state of Georgia because the incentives offered under the Inflation Reduction Act are so good. For the first time ever, the number of electric cars and light trucks sold this year in the U.S. will top 1 million. Globally, 14% of all new cars sold in 2022 were electric, up from 9% in 2021 and less than 5% in 2020. 23 major countries, including the U.S., China, most of Western Europe, Canada, Australia, Spain, Thailand, and Hungary, have now reached the point where 5% of new car sales are straight battery electric vehicles powered only by electricity. And that 5% threshold typically signals the start of the steep part of the technology adoption S-curve, where technological preferences rapidly flip and the slow phase of initial sales gives way to mass adoption. The trajectory laid out by the first early adopters shows that EVs can surge from 5% to 25% of new cars in just four years, and that 5% threshold globally was passed in 2021. If the trends hold true, the rest of this decade will be remembered for an astonishingly rapid uptake of EVs. But aside from the surprisingly fast adoption of EVs, there's another reason why this story is so important to the energy transition. The transport sector is by far the largest consumer of oil. It accounts for around 60% of the 100 million barrels of oil used globally every day. Around 45% of the total, or around 45 million barrels a day, is used in road fuel for vehicles like cars, trucks, and vans. The implications of the surging sales of EVs globally are massive, which is why we should all take careful note of what our guest today has to say. Colin McCarricker leads coverage of the transport sector at Bloomberg NEF, where he has been closely tracking the transportation transition for the past eight years. And his team's latest report, Electric Vehicle Outlook 2023, published in September, has a bombshell projection. The global peak in overall road fuel demand could be just about three years off in 2027, and global oil demand for all uses could peak by 2029. In today's two-hour conversation, we'll explore all the data from that report, including the outlook for EVs, plug-in hybrids, and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles in all vehicle classes, the different trajectories of EV adoption in various parts of the world, the looming need for more charging infrastructure, and the implications for the utility industry, the changing competitive landscape for the world's major automakers, and the questions around whether the world can produce enough key minerals to keep EV production growing. 
Then in the news segment, we'll offer some updates on numerous aspects of Britain's energy transition policies. We'll also get the latest updates on both of the world's major subsea transmission cable projects. We'll note the astonishing advance of rooftop solar in South Australia. And we'll hear about yet another massive fraud case involving a major U.S. utility. But before we go to the interview, announcements, 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 we'd like to welcome our latest group subscribers. The Western Australia Department of Water and Environmental Regulation manages and regulates the state's environment and water resources. And the Bristol Energy Committee, a volunteer organization focused on reducing the cost and energy consumption of the town's facilities and improving homeowner energy efficiency in Bristol, New Hampshire. We're so pleased to have both groups on board. And now, our conversation with Colin McCarricker, recorded October 4th, 2023. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Colin, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be on the program with you. You know, I've been following the work that you and your team have done on the transportation transition since you started doing it in 2015, so I feel like it's about time we had you on the show. Yeah, it's been a while now. All of a sudden, there's sort of eight years have gone by of tracking this <laughs> stuff very closely. Yeah, yeah, it has gone by quickly, hasn't it? All right, well, today we're going to be discussing your team's annual report, the Electric Vehicle Outlook 2023, which was released in September. And I want to talk about all of its findings, including the sales trends for BEVs or battery electric vehicles, hybrids and internal combustion or ICE vehicles, China's booming EV production, the lagging performance of the legacy automakers, why EVs are now far outpacing hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, and a lot more. But where I think I want to start is with what I would call your headline finding, that the peak in overall road fuel demand will be just about three years from now in 2027. And that potentially there will be a peak in global oil demand for all uses, not just road fuel, by 2029. That's in one of your scenarios anyway. And that's a lot sooner than I think anyone has anticipated. In fact, I seem to remember just a couple of years ago that the oil majors were confidently predicting that demand for oil will remain robust for several decades to come. So what went into that estimate? Yeah, I should start by saying that's contentious still. So when we hear yeah. just recently in the news, the head of Saudi Aramco saying, actually, no, we think in 2030, global oil demand will be 110 million barrels per day and sees no peak anywhere near. So there is significant debate on that. So let me justify it a little bit. The first thing to note is that internal combustion engine vehicle sales, so this is not the fleet, but sales already peaked in 2017. Sales were quite high in 2017. They came down in 2018, again in 2019. That was part of the sort of the structural cyclical shift that you have in the auto industry where it goes in sort of these peaks and valleys over time. Then COVID hit and sales of everything dropped quite a bit. And now that the recovery is on, and again, this is the passenger vehicle segment, what you're seeing is that most of the growth, in fact, in most countries, almost all the growth is being taken up by electric vehicles rather than internal combustion engine vehicles. So sales mm -hmm. of internal combustion engine vehicles are now 20% off of their peak from 2017. By 2025, we think that's around 40%. When you look at what's going on in China, in Europe, there's just no real route back to growth for the internal combustion engine vehicle market in terms of sales. Now that takes a long time to flow through to the fleet and there are other vehicle types to consider. But I think that's kind of the starting point is that passenger cars matter a lot. We think sales peaked and a lot of what you see in that prediction is that just flowing through to the rest of the market. There are some other things too. The internal combustion engine vehicles that are being sold are significantly more efficient than the ones they're displacing. So even on the ICE side of the ledger, you've got lower consumption per kilometer or per mile in terms of fuel, and that's pushing some of those other ones out. The other thing to note is that 
This isn't something really hypothetical, so the idea of EVs displacing oil demand. When we look across all the vehicle classes today, we estimate that EVs are displacing around 1.5 million barrels of oil demand today. Now that's against over 100 million globally, so you could see it as a relatively small amount, but I think that's higher than many people realize. And a big part of that is that people think of cars, but really a lot of this displacement is happening from two and three wheelers, of which there are a few hundred million on the road, primarily in Asia, electric two and three wheelers, and also buses. So the electric bus fleet in China is quite large. So those are kind of the, the building blocks, if you will. And that displacement will continue to go up. And it's worth noting that that is a counterfactual statement. So what we're saying with that is that 1.5 million barrels per day, if all the electric vehicles across all vehicle classes that are on the road right now were instead powered by internal combustion engine, then global oil demand would be 1.5 million barrels per day higher than it is. Right. Yeah. So those are kind of the building blocks that give us some confidence. And then when you look at individual markets and individual segments, you find that actually US and Europe, at least in terms of road transport fuel, have probably already peaked. And demand in China, we think is going to peak in 2024, maybe 2025. And the big thing that's keeping that from happening sooner is actually commercial vehicles. So we talked a bit about buses, two and three wheelers, passenger cars. Commercial vehicles are just at the very beginning of their transition to zero emissions options, so fuel cell and electric. And so that's kind of keeping overall road fuel demand growing for a bit longer. But eventually we see that starting to turn as well too. And we're starting to see the first signs of that around two or 3%, sometimes four or 5%, depending on the given month of heavy commercial vehicle sales in China are now electric or fuel cell options. So commercial vehicles are going a bit slower and mean the peak takes longer to get to, but eventually that starts to shift as well. And it's hard to outrun what's happening on the passenger vehicle fleet as well. Yeah. And to that point, your Bloomberg colleague, Tom Randall, recently published a useful piece where he was pointing out that once sales reach what he called a tipping point around 5% of total sales for EVs, then they start to sort of run away with the market share. And that's consistent with the classic S-curve of adoptions for various kinds of technologies. And so you could imagine that once commercial vehicles in the last point you made get to that sort of 5% level, then chances are good they're going to run away to the EV side as well. Yeah, definitely. And that 5%, we, sometimes it's 8% depending on the market or depending on whether you're including plug-in hybrid but it's in about that range and then it starts to take off. The one yeah. thing I'll say, and that's very much the way we model it as a consumer diffusion curve, but I will say also that there hasn't been something as expensive go through this type of transition before. So a lot of the modeling around consumer adoption curves are things like air conditioning or smartphones or microwaves or all these things that go very quickly and take over their market. None of those were really at the purchasing capability boundary of individual consumers. So cars are the second most expensive things people purchase. And as a result, I think we're navigating somewhat new territory. I think it's still right to think of it as an S-curve and to think of it as a consumer adoption story. But it is just important to say that this is somewhat new territory and that we've never seen something that constitutes this large a share of somebody's household budget when we talk about those consumer adoption curves. So I, I think it's still the right framework and the right approach, but we're sort of charting new waters as we go here. Yeah, that's a good caveat. You know, I thought it was interesting that your team is largely in agreement with the IEA on this outlook for sort of peaking road fuel demand by 2027. The IEA's oil 2023 report, which was released in June, sees a peak not just in road fuel demand, but for all uses of oil combustion by 2028. And I'll just put a little note there that is 
outlook for oil combustion, so that doesn't include things like plastics and other uses of oil. In fact, they see demand for road fuel declining slightly starting in 2026, and that's just right around the corner, and that's a global outlook. And although IEA's forecast period ends in 2028, it looks to me like they're essentially suggesting that it could also be the peak in total oil demand at around 105.7 million barrels a day. Both the IEA and BNEF see EVs as the primary reason for this decline in road fuel demand. And just to kind of complete the picture, the U.S. Energy Information Administration, or EIA, although it was a bit less precise in its annual energy outlook this year, in all of its scenarios, it sees the recovery in gasoline demand from the pandemic low ending next year, more or less, with gasoline demand declining from 2025 onward. And since gasoline is the dominant form of motor fuel used in the U.S., I'm going to call that close enough to be in agreement as well with your outlook and IEA's because EIA believes that 2018 was actually the all-time peak in U.S. gasoline demand, which is also consistent with your team's finding. So this really struck me as notable. I have never seen all these agency forecasts lining up this way with respect to future oil demand. That really struck me as notable because I assume that these various teams are actually using quite different in-house models. So the fact that they're converging on this idea seems significant to me. Yeah, and I think that is quite different than where we've been in the past. And I think you know you're a friend of Bloomberg NEF for quite a while, Chris. You know we've generally sure. been on the more aggressive end of, of these adoption stories. But even yep. even in our case, we've pulled this forward by about two years over the last seven years of doing this model. And so that's just really reflecting the changing data. I mean, you go to the most recent month in China and 40%, so far, I think it's going to come out around 40% for September, of vehicle sales had a plug. You just can't really ignore that. And everybody's ingesting that same data into their model. And like you said, there are different ways of modeling it, and we've all got different approaches. But that starts to play through in a very material way. And I think that's what's happening. I will just say that calling peaks is a fraught area, right? You'll either be correct and everyone will kind of, it'll seem obvious in retrospect, or you'll be wrong and you'll be mocked on the internet forever after. And I belong in that latter class. I should just point that out. Yeah. And I think many of us working on climate and energy thought coal peaked 10 years ago and it didn't. And so we should be a bit careful until we're well clear of a peak before celebrating it. But I do think all the data is now pointing in this direction. And rather than it taking something really remarkable to get to peak demand, I think it would take something at this point quite remarkable not to. So yeah, that is a very different place than we've been to in the last, well, in decades or maybe even the last century. Yeah. And to your earlier point about the difference between EVs penetrating sales as a share of sales or penetrating total fleet size, it's sort of a classic stocks versus flow issue. Exactly. And so you've got this massive stock of vehicles out there. I think Roughly a billion globally, right? Passenger vehicles, about 1.3 billion actually now. Well, we're at 1.3 already. Yeah. Okay. And then you're replacing them with, I don't know, how many passenger vehicles are being sold annually? Yeah, it's sort of 70 to 80 million given the year. I will say one of the areas that is still a big area of contention when we look at some of the oil major forecasts is, is the size of the overall vehicle fleet. So when we look at like how many cars do you need to satisfy the mobility demand of a growing world in terms of rising levels of wealth and rising population, we see it coming in significantly lower around 1.6 billion cars in 2050 
versus some of the oil majors that think it's more like 2, 2.2. And that may account for some of their views of more aggressive oil demand growth in some ways. It's, it's that yes, EVs come in, but there's more and more mobility demand. I think there's very good reasons to be skeptical of that view. I don't see emerging economies following the exact same trajectory other places have followed. I also just don't see physically where all those cars will go. If you've spent a lot of time in a big emerging economy city, the first thing you don't think is this place would be better with twice as many, three times as many cars, right? <laughs> right. Or, or any city for that matter. Yeah. So there's some doubts around that, but I think that also may account for some of the differences in views that you still see between the agencies that you talked about and some of the oil majors and their outlooks too. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, when I was working on EV adoption in my previous gig, I really made an effort to limit my model so that the total number of vehicles on the road would have to cap out at some reasonable number. And it wasn't that much higher than where we are now, in my view. Like it just, the whole concept of like more pavement, more vehicles, more refueling infrastructure, all of that starts to just get a little ridiculous after a while. Yeah. And if we see a scenario where look, road building in India is doubling over previous rates of build or tripling then we might start to say, okay, maybe it can accommodate that larger vehicle fleet or if economic growth really takes off in those areas. But the reality is car purchasing is non-linear by income. So you need to cross a certain income threshold before you get a large middle class and a large car fleet. And I don't think what we see right now is that India is on track to have that wealth or that level of infrastructure build that we saw building a giant vehicle fleet in China. So if groups yeah. are relying on India being the next China from a vehicle market, from an oil consumption market, I think they're going to be disappointed in that. And I think Again, if the data changes, our outlook will change. And that's the good thing about working on these things is you get to adjust your view depending on what the data says. Right. And although this is out of scope for today's conversation, I think there's a lot of reasons to think that as the world demand for mobility continues to increase, that it's going to make sense on a whole lot of levels for that demand to be satisfied with public transportation and not with individual vehicles. Definitely. And the more time you spend around global transport data, around how people and goods move, one of the things yeah. that you conclude is that you're going to have to sort of fire every weapon in the arsenal to keep our cities livable over the next 30 years. You're going to need reduced demand. You're going to need more public transit. You're going to need more active transit. You're going to need yeah. denser cities. And you're also going to need around a billion EVs. So you're kind of going to need all of the above to both ensure that these are places people actually want to continue to live and also to ensure that we hit climate targets, which we can talk about as well. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, let's dive into the report here a little bit because there's just so much interesting detail here. But just to begin with, we should probably explain your scenarios. So your report uses two scenarios to explore a range of possible outcomes. Could you just briefly describe what those two scenarios are and why you chose them? Yeah, and these are consistent with overall Bloomberg NEF modeling scenarios. So we have two main ones that we do. And they are the economic transition scenario, which is essentially a techno-economic-led energy transition. So it's notable in what it doesn't assume. It doesn't assume that long-term policy targets of carbon neutrality are hit. It also uses economics as the primary driver to decide what gets built or what gets bought. So in the power sector, that's looking at levelized cost of electricity. And in the vehicle sector, that's looking at both upfront vehicle prices and also total cost of ownership of vehicles to determine what consumers buy. So that's the kind of core of what the economic transition scenario is, techno-economic analysis 
assumes no new policies are implemented. Then there's a net zero scenario, which says we need to get to, in road transport's case, a net zero capable vehicle fleet globally by 2050. And capable is important here because, of course, these vehicles still have upstream emissions associated with power generation if it's electric vehicles or with hydrogen generation if it's fuel cell vehicles. And basically, we're saying, look, we're not taking that part into this outlook that goes in BNF's new energy outlook, which is a different publication. But what we're trying to say with a net zero scenario is, what do you have to do to get to a net zero capable fleet in 2050? Now, importantly, we don't attach a carbon budget to that. So if anyone spent time in modeling circles around this, there's a big difference between getting to an endpoint and getting to an endpoint in a way that doesn't blow a carbon budget that's often set by different degree targets from the IPCC. So those are the two different scenarios that we look at. One of them very much led by economics and market forces, the other one led by policy and essentially backcasting to get to an endpoint. Yeah. And just for the record, I have begged many times <laughs> that the IPCC would develop what you're calling your economic transition scenario and contrast that with the policy-driven scenario of net zero. Because as far as I can tell, these two ways of looking at the future are projecting quite different outcomes. Definitely. And definitely at different speeds. And I feel like there's a lot of climate scientists out there or analysts who only look at climate-oriented data who are just not comprehending how fast the market is actually moving. And the market is moving way ahead of the kind of realities or scenarios that are contemplated in the IPCC framework. And I think that's giving a lot of people a mistaken impression that things are moving a lot more slowly than they actually are. Yeah, and if you're one of these people who gets to work on electric vehicles and batteries day in, day out, like I do, then that's very, very clear that things are going faster. We're probably one of the most optimistic big forecasting groups out there, and they're going faster than we anticipated on a couple of key technologies. And in our report, actually, we break down the different segments of road transport and say, how far is the economic transition scenario away from the net zero scenario? And actually, what you find when you break it down by segment is that three-wheeled vehicles, so we don't think about these a lot if you're sitting in Europe or North America, but they're a big part of the mobility mix and, and the commercial mobility mix in some cases in emerging economies. So that's an auto rickshaw in India or a tuk-tuk in Thailand and other places have different names. But that sector is actually already on track for the net zero scenario. You're going to get almost 100% fleet electrification by 2050, maybe likely even sooner, probably in the 2040s. Wow. Two and three wheelers is not far off either. Buses are not far off either. Then the next group is kind of passenger cars and light commercial vehicles. And then as we talked about earlier, heavier commercial vehicles are the furthest off. But I think one of the most heartening things I see in doing this, working on these topics for well over a decade now, and including my previous role, almost 20 years now, is that we have a few categories of technologies and sectors of the economy that are on track. That is quite a remarkable statement to say, actually, three-wheeled vehicles and almost two-wheeled vehicles are pretty close to on track for the net zero scenario. And I hope yep. we see more segments of the economy, and, and in my world, more segments of transport move into that category over time. Each one of those will be a battle. Each one of those will require huge amounts of ingenuity, huge amounts of capital, and huge amounts of hard work. But even just seeing that it can be done and seeing that over a 10-year period, I agree. You want to tell people, look, this is happening. We have the agency to do this. And, and not only that, we are doing that and we are succeeding in some of these cases. Yeah. All right. Well, so let's look at what these two scenarios are saying. After we pass this peak, like in 2027 in the economic transition scenario, oil demand starts declining quite sharply, doesn't it? 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Some recent policy changes in the UK suggest a bit of a change in tack for the energy policies we discussed a few months ago in episode 202 on the UK's Green Day. First, in mid-September, the British government announced an initiative that will offer £1 billion worth of home energy efficiency upgrades to improve the country's infamously leaky housing stock. Homes with poor energy efficiency and low-income homeowners will be eligible for upgrades to their roof, loft, or cavity wall insulation under a new program called the Great British Insulation Scheme. That could cut average annual bills by 300 to 400 pounds, according to a statement by the Department for Energy Security and Net Zero. MP Chris Skidmore, the government's former energy minister and chair of the Independent Government Review on Net Zero, has called Britain, quote, the poor man of Europe when it comes to energy insulation and clean heat, end quote, noting that, quote, our homes lose heat the fastest, 3C in five hours compared to 0.3C in Sweden. We are bottom of the league when it comes to heat pump installation, 21 out of 21, installing just 30,000 heat pumps to France's 500,000. As a result, 80% of our domestic heating is gas compared to 50% in the rest of Europe. For myself, the case is so obvious, so overwhelming, that retrofit isn't and could never be termed, to borrow a phrase from the Prime Minister, expensive insulation. End quote. Britain's energy efficiency improvements stalled out in late 2013 when Conservative then-Prime Minister David Cameron gutted energy efficiency subsidies, effectively banned onshore wind in England, and scrapped the zero-carbon home standard to, quote, get rid of the green crap. According to an analysis by Simon Evans of Carbon Brief, had the green crap policies remained in place, the UK would have been spending about £2.5 billion less on energy per year, including about half a billion pounds per year owing to efficiency. The new plan, which is expected to benefit more than 300,000 families, comes as households head into winter facing stubbornly high energy bills after the withdrawal of government support. The typical UK household is set to pay over 80% more this winter on energy than in winters before the energy crisis started two years ago. 
About a week after the new insulation scheme was announced, current Conservative Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced a rollback of several of the UK's climate policy targets, including delaying the ban on new gas boiler installations to 2035, scrapping requirements for private rented homes to meet new minimum energy efficiency standards by 2025, and delaying the deadline for phasing out the sale of new petrol and diesel cars from 2030 to 2035. I've been in the UK for the past several months, and I listened to Sunak's speech when it was broadcast live on the BBC. Although Sunak said he was, quote, absolutely unequivocal about sticking to the government's commitment to reach net zero by 2050, he offered no significant new policies to achieve the target and just pushed back on the existing commitments. Most observers in the press, including industry representatives and numerous members of Sunak's own party, savaged the announcement as backward, unhelpful, and an obvious attempt to whip up populist resentment and use climate policies as a wedge against the Labour Party. I wrote a shorter version of Sunak's speech, which I posted on Mastodon. Quote, I'm very proud of Britain's leadership on climate. We have decarbonized our economy faster than anyone else in Europe. That's why I insist that we stop overperforming and slow down our transition to the pace of France. And I remain committed to our net zero and 1.5 degrees C goals, of which we are currently falling far short. That's why I'm halting the policies that will get us there and asking Tory voters how we might get there more slowly. We'll get back to you with our better ideas. End quote. Which sadly, was an honest reading of what Sunak actually said. Sunak said the government will continue to subsidize energy efficiency measures and expanded some schemes to help achieve that, so presumably the new Great British Insulation Scheme remains intact. However, according to a subsequent analysis by Norway-based carbon consultancy VATE, the weakening of green initiatives by the UK's Conservative government has caused UK emission prices to fall to less than half of the EU's emission trading system, which will cause British exporters to become liable for hundreds of millions of pounds in taxes that will have to be paid under the EU's Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM, which comes into effect in 2026. Under the CBAM, countries that want to export to the EU must show that they have an equivalent carbon price in place or pay penalties to make up the difference. So effectively, UK industry will be paying taxes to the EU system in Brussels where they are earmarked for additional investment into renewables outside the UK instead of to the UK government where they could have been used to support domestic energy upgrades. For more on the CBAM, listen to episode 193. Item 2. The world's longest subsea transmission cable, the X-Links Morocco-UK Power Project, commonly known as the X-Links Project, got a big boost in early October when the UK government designated it a nationally significant infrastructure project. Accordingly, the project's infrastructure... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.